0: Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons Worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Good afternoon, evening, or morning, depending on what time you're listening to this. And uh, on this episode, I'm going to share some articles from the October-November 2014 California Freemason Magazine. And the reason I chose this one this time is because of everything that's going on in the world today. And this episode, this issue, is called the Masonic Model for Peace. So I think we're at a point now where we all need a little peace and harmony and brotherly love in our lives. So let's see what the uh, California Grand Lodge has to say about that. And we'll start here with an article called The Seeds of Tolerance. And this is written by Pierre-Yves Beaurepaire. And it starts, uh, In 18th century Europe and beyond, Freemasonry struggled with conflicting moral and social attitudes towards tolerance. Pre-Enlightenment Europe was not a friendly place for those outside the majority. During the 18th century, two out of every three years was marked by war, revealing bloody divides between dueling Christian factions. Tolerance was perceived as a weakness, a failure by men and kings to bring others back to the true faith. But as the Enlightenment dawned over the Western world, so did curiosity about other cultures. A new notion of what it meant to be a citizen of the world gained popularity, along with the idea of a global community. Within the atmosphere of cosmopolitanism, Freemasonry was created." The 18th century went on to be a period in which the virtues of tolerance were learned throughout Europe, both in society at large and in Masonic lodges. It would prove to be a long, difficult learning process punctuated by outbursts of intolerance. A complicated universality, and that's in quotes. The founding text of Freemasonry, the 1723 Constitutions of the Grand Lodge of London, first defined the contours of a genuine universal spirit within the fraternity. Its first section, Concerning God and Religion, opened the brotherhood to all except the stupid atheists and irreligious libertine. From a practical standpoint, this accommodated the religious plurality of the British Islands, dominated by various forms of Christianity. But theoretically, it also opened the door for brothers of any religious belief, Christian or otherwise. It made it possible for a truly universal fraternity, united in values, if not beliefs. In theory, then, the Brethren were agreed on the issue of religious tolerance. But this was not so easily put into practice. Within Templar masonry, Catholics, particularly in Italy, found it difficult to submit themselves to the authority of German Protestants. In Scandinavia, where false rumors were circulating about the King of Sweden possibly converting to Catholicism, Lutherans feared their Catholic brothers would try to bring them back into the bosom of Rome masonry claimed universality also struggled to move beyond the frontiers of western Christianity. Catholics and Protestants could socialize in 18th century lodges, but Jewish and Muslim access to Freemasonry tested brotherly tolerance, as did the admission of men of color. Acceptance and Prejudice The challenge was immense. In a society based on religious prejudice and slavery, Was it possible to recognize such individuals as equals without plunging established order into chaos? In continental Europe, granting Jews a high rank that carried Christian significance like sovereign prince of Rosicrucian triggered the wrath of Christian Freemasons. Those who have the circumcision for baptism were frequently excluded from lodges altogether. In major European capitals, far from the Mediterranean, Muslims were warmly welcomed in Masonic lodges and even rescued from financial difficulties. In the mid-1780s, Mohammed Tekelebi, a sea captain and privateer from Algiers, made a Masonic tour of Europe with a certificate from the English Lodge of Gibraltar. But in Mediterranean ports, where Barbary privateering was still a reality, it was nearly impossible for a Muslim to enter the Brotherhood. Enlightenment lodges of the main European capitals did not have major objections to accepting free men of color. They considered such members proof of progress of the spirit of tolerance and enlightenment. Active members of the famous Société des Amis des Noirs, Society of the Friends of the Blacks, were masons. The Lodge des Émoulets de Hiram was made up of free men of color. But colonial lodges, such as those in the French Caribbean and the French territories of the Indian Ocean, were often violently opposed to it. When the French Caribbean Lodge Le Cour Unis petitioned for a constitution in 1781, the powerful merchant lodge Lodge saint jean de Cos of Marseille wrote to the Grand Orient that the alliances of some of the members with free people of color was unbearable and a casus belli, an act worthy of war. After the 18th century. As some lodges stumbled, others made strides. In the late 1800s, progressive lodges supported the Esperanto movement, which sought to create a universal language as an instrument of mutual understanding and sharing. With Masonic support, the annual international convention, the Congreso Universal de Esperanto, was created in 1905. Some lodges, especially in Spain and Latin America, still function today in Esperanto, including Vienna's Universala Freemasona Ligo and the Spanish Lodge Afortunada, As time went on, the fraternity grew more tolerant, and in many ways, so did the world outside it. But after World War I, Masons faced new sources of persecution from fascist powers in the Western world in World War II to those in the former Soviet Union until 1991. From Pinochet's coup in Chile of 1917 to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, each political upheaval has prompted the exile of Freemasons to new lands. By and large, the global fraternity has risen to welcome them. Russians and Mensheviks created Masonic lodges under the auspices of the Grand Lodge in Paris after October 17. Chilean Freemasons in exile in France founded lodges under the protection of the Grand Lodge of France, and the Grand Lodge of Chile in exile was founded to join all exiled Chilean Masons in Europe. After Iran's Islamic Revolution of 1979, a Grand Lodge of Iran in exile was organized with members in Paris, New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. It is currently established in Los Angeles. Each band of displaced Masons has served as a living reminder of the imperative of tolerance. Each time they have been welcomed by brothers, as brothers, they prove its impact. The seeds of this attitude were planted in 18th century European lodges. Although the seasons have been harsh, they continue to grow today. And then there's an editor's note, Pierre-Yves Beaurepaire is a professor of history at the University of Nice and a fellow at the Institut Universitaire de France. So our next article is, I guess you would call it the title article of the issue, The Masonic Model for Peace by Laura Normand. And a couple things on here. It says, Lessons on the Complicated Issue of Religious Tolerance. And then over on this side of the page, it says, A curious thing happens when two waves meet. Imagine a pond as a rain shower breaks over it. The first raindrop strikes the water, and a ripple spreads along the surface. A few feet away, another raindrop strikes, and a second ripple appears and grows outward. What happens when the two sets of ripples meet? You might assume they'll collide like billiard balls, scattering in all directions. We are accustomed to thinking that two things cannot occupy the same space at the same time, or at the very least, not comfortably. Ask anyone who's tried to squeeze onto a packed subway car. But that's not what happens at all. In fact, waves can pass through each other and emerge intact. Our two ripples share a brief, amicable moment in space, and then they each continues merrily on its way. The same thing happens if there are three sets of converging ripples. The same thing happens if there are four, five, or fifty. None comes away weaker. None is bullied off its trajectory. The chance encounter does not compromise each one's unique path across the pond. Perhaps it just makes the journey a little less lonely. The Tolerance Problem Religious intolerance is, in Donald Morrison's words, an enormous problem in today's world. Few in his field would argue Morrison, a professor of philosophy and classical studies at Rice University, directs the Boniak Institute for the Study and Advancement of Religious Tolerance, founded in 2013. Religious intolerance is in the headlines every day, he says. The militants of the Islamic State of Syria and Iraq are committing violence against everyone who does not share their religious views, whether Muslim, Christian, or others. The violence of Boko Haram in Nigeria has a religious motivation. Here in the United States, anti Semitism is still a problem. We have a strong tradition of religious freedom and religious tolerance in this country, but intolerant attitudes and behaviors persist. And none of this is new. From crusades to genocides, harassment to exclusion, history is darkened by examples of religious intolerance. Even within faiths, differing views lead to conflict. All too often, we seem to regard our beliefs as billiard balls hasty to claim their space and some cosmic pool table. Today, universities, nonprofits, and communities are creating programs to untangle the naughty problem of religious intolerance and to foster acceptance, understanding, and appreciation for different beliefs. From the Niagara Foundation, which hosts community programs, to Notre Dame's Kroc Institute, which offers a doctorate in international peace studies, the topic of religious tolerance is a priority. In Modesto, California, the school district introduced a requisite world religion class for ninth grade students in 2000, and the program remains well-received by parents, students, and educational researchers. In Houston, Morrison's Boniac Institute has developed a continuing education course for the community, Religious Diversity and Understanding in Today's World, taught by professors of comparative religion, sociology, and philosophy. That it takes a multidisciplinary team of experts to educate a willing community on how to begin studying differences, never mind reconciling them, underscores the complexity and the fragility of religious tolerance in the world today. Our reaction to differing beliefs changes from one part of the world to another, from one household to the next, from one side of the dinner table to the other. But one thing is universally true. Like ripples on the same pond, we are all in this together, and we must find a peaceful way to interact. It is a mighty challenge, but every day there are success stories. For 300 years the fraternity has been one of them. Beyond Tolerance In Morals and Dogma, a publication for Scottish Rite Freemasonry, Albert Pike wrote, No man truly obeys the Masonic law who merely tolerates those whose religious opinions are opposed to his own. Every man's opinions are his own private property, and the rights of all men to maintain each his own are perfectly equal. Merely to tolerate, To bear with an opposing opinion is to assume it to be heretical, and assert the right to persecute, if we would, and claim our toleration of it as a merit. The Mason's Creed goes further than that. No man, it holds, has any right, in any way, to interfere with the religious belief of another. The word tolerance is a bit limited in its dictionary definition, but in modern usage, and especially in the context of Masonic discussion, it takes on an expanded meaning. For the purposes of this article, let's agree that tolerance is not about merely putting up with another set of beliefs. It is about cultivating respect for the person who holds them. It is not about flaunting our own goodness and righteousness. It is about goodwill. It is about a generosity of spirit and an earnest hope that there is a way for all of us to win. At its best, it is a sincere effort to accept others as they are. It is about being open to the possibility that they have their own wisdom to share, and resisting the impulse to feel threatened by it. In his book, For the Sake of Heaven and Earth, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg talks about living in a pluralist society, such as the United States, in which people of different social classes, religions, and races live together, but continue to maintain distinct traditions and interests. Pluralism means more than accepting any or even affirming the other, Greenberg writes. It entails recognizing the blessings in each other's existence, because it balances one's own position and brings all of us closer to the ultimate goal. Even when we are right in our own position, the other who contradicts our position may be our correction or our check against going to excess. Pluralism is not relativism, for we hold on to our absolutes. However, we make room for others as well. Tolerance, in these contexts, is certainly not about ignoring differences or eradicating them that oversimplifies the issue and minimizes everyone's faith. It's not even necessarily about trying to close the gap between one's own beliefs and someone else's. Rather, it's about building bridges over our disconnects. A bridge might be a cup of coffee in a conversation, or it might be the Masonic Lodge. For Faith, Not Theology. Freemasonry has been remarkably successful at building these bridges. With few exceptions, it accepts applicants of all faiths, with the sole requirement being that they believe in a supreme being. Globally, there are minor variations on that theme. Many of Masonry's rituals and symbols are rooted in a Christian past, but since its modern origins in 1717, the worldwide fraternity has not promoted one religion over another. Applicants may take their obligations on the holy writings of their choice. Within the Lodge, sectarian religious topics are off-limits. Masons may not proselytize. They have other work to do. Belief in God is faith belief about God is theology. As Freemasons, we are interested in faith only and not in theology, reads a 1952 Statement on Freemasonry and Religion, prepared by the Masonic Information Center of North America. When Freemasonry accepts a Christian, or a Jew, or a Buddhist, or a Mohammedan, it does not accept him as such, but accepts him as a man, worthy to be received into the Masonic fraternity. Of course, the fraternity has not always lived up to its own promises, Freemasonry is shaped by the societies in which it exists, and so the fraternity's spectrum of religious tolerance has varied by geography, by culture, and by the behavior of the individuals who comprise it. Every jurisdiction around the Masonic world has had its challenges, but there has also been consistent long-term progress. Here in California in the 19th century, there were lodges in San Francisco with only Jewish members, and even a Jewish-Scottish Rite Valley. In the generations since, those divisions have gradually disappeared. In Utah, the Grand Lodge of Utah banned Latter-day Saints from joining in 1925, the result of a religious tension within the organization. The ban, which had been supported by numerous American Grand Lodges, was only just rescinded in 1984. And 2008 marked another indicator of progress. Glenn Cook became Utah's first acknowledged Mormon Grand Master in a century. In Utah, applicants disclosed their religious preference during their preliminary investigation. Our fraternity reflects the biases and prejudices of the culture in which it is located. This includes both racial discrimination and religious discrimination. Cook says, The fraternity, to a great extent, has risen above that. We evolve as a people and as a culture. The fraternity reflects this evolution as well. A Masonic Model, The Glue Although individual masons, lodges, and even entire jurisdictions may falter, religious tolerance remains a universal goal. Just how has masonry gone about it, and why has it largely succeeded? How, as Cook puts, has the fraternity risen above the biases and prejudices of its surrounding culture? Perhaps the most succinct explanation is this. It focuses on those things that unite brothers, and it deliberately avoids discussing those things that divide them, religion and politics, namely. But there's an important addendum here. Rather than muting or discounting differences between brothers, the fraternity uses symbols, deliberate in their vagueness, for each mason to interpret through his own lens of faith. Masons do not check their individual beliefs at the door. They store their beliefs within the symbols of the craft, where they remain front and center. Russell Charvonia was installed as California's Grand Master on October 12th. The shared belief in a supreme being is a very powerful metaphor, he says. At the same time that Freemasonry binds us with similarities, it recognizes the importance of the individual to have his own belief." This distinction leads to discussions that are heartfelt and challenging, while roundly avoiding divisive arguments. In Masonic Lodges, you don't hear conversations about Judaism as a religion, about Islam as a religion, says Alan Castle, Grand Secretary, but there is plenty of discussion about ideas that are foundational to different religions—charity, justice, and mercy, joy and friendship and love. Brothers might use religious text to aid such conversations. Some might even give examples of religious practices. But we don't talk about whether religions are right or wrong, says Kasselou. We talk about what we're supposed to learn from them. The Head, the Heart, and the Matter of Trust In their article, Higher Education and Reducing Prejudice, researchers Victoria L. Guthrie, Patricia M. King, and Carolyn J. Palmer offer preliminary evidence that an individual's tolerance for diversity is related to his or her ability for reflective thinking the critical thinking process of analyzing, evaluating, and making judgments. As Castello points out, Masonry makes a habit of this kind of complicated thinking, teaching brothers how to cultivate it over a lifetime. Masonry also turns the onus of tolerance on brothers themselves, leading its members on a lifelong quest for self-examination and self-improvement. It's difficult to dismiss another's beliefs outright when we must continually admit that we do not have all the answers ourselves. Humility and curiosity are byproducts of critical thinking. Perhaps they're also precursors to peace. Some of the times I am most proud of who I am as a person is when I am able to change my stance on a topic based on what I learned from another person, says Charvonia. We all have developed biases and prejudices that influence how we think about and treat one another. It is very easy to become hardened in our attitudes towards other people, Masonry teaches us to subdue our passions so that we are able to take that extra moment to consider how we respond to each other. Masonry is a model for tolerance in a less cerebral way, too. Genuine interaction. Friendships that begin in lodge extend outside of it. Brothers attend each other's weddings and funerals. They comfort each other in times of grief. They counsel each other in times of uncertainty. They celebrate with each other in times of joy. They may incidentally learn each other's religions through such experience, but that's not the point. Even if they can never identify the other's religious preference, they feel a deep kinship outside presumable differences in belief. In the advancement of tolerance, human interaction is paramount. Brian Flanagan is an assistant professor of theology at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. He witnesses this phenomenon every day among students in his theological inquiry class. If someone remains entirely unknown to you, it's very easy to fill in that empty space with your own images, positive or negative, which are likely to be wrong, he says. Meeting a person, learning about their very particular story, finding out that they're just as complex as you are, that's what really breaks through any stereotypes of preconceived notions. Numerous studies suggest that insecurity or the perception of threat from an outside group is strongly related to intolerance. A college classroom like Flanagan's can be a great example of a safe, accepting space where those perceived threats dissipate. So can the Masonic Lodge. Through its inclusive principles and shared experiences, its fraternal obligations and emphasis on fellowship, Freemasonry breaks down insecurities and breeds trust, in our ability to believe something without being ridiculed for it, in another's ability to believe something different and not harm us. Brother by Brother Flanagan says that one of the society's best bets for advancing religious tolerance is to promote common spaces where people can come together and speak to each other, as opposed to talking about each other. If you're going to reach the level of trust beyond politeness, that is key for real dialogue. You need to make a real commitment to walk with, to abide with, your dialogue partners over a longer period of time, says Flanagan. This echoes Charbonian. If we are able to find sacred time inside the Lodge to practice decorum and civility and build trust with each other, we can have those more difficult conversations outside the Lodge. Charvonia hopes Masons will use the skills they hone in Lodge, finding things that unite them, engaging in meaningful conversations, learning to respectfully disagree, to advance religious tolerance outside Lodge walls. Currently, the California Fraternity is teaming up with the National Civility Center and other U.S. Masonic jurisdictions to create resources for communities and families to build civility, and hopefully, religious tolerance with it. But, like any great movement, religious tolerance begins with the individual— Glenn Cook, Utah's past grandmaster, recalls the moment when he realized that his trust in his Masonic brothers was truly absolute. A number of years ago, our youngest son was comatose with meningoencephalitis, Cook says. At the same time, our older son was being married in the temple of our faith. What does the parent do? Which, with which son do the parents go? Our older son and his bride offered to postpone their wedding. We counseled them that we did not know where our youngest son's spirits was. Surely we would be closer to him in the Holy Temple, yet we still wanted someone at his bedside in case the worst occurred. It was two past grandmasters who undertook this difficult duty. I didn't know their religious faith then, and I don't know it now, and I don't care. They were there to comfort our family. Masonry's greatest priority is still to foster an attitude of tolerance and acceptance within its lodges. If the fraternity can lay this foundation among its own members and families, the world can build a path to peace upon it. And our final article in this episode is called Light Expanding and is also from the October-November 2014 California Freemason Magazine and is written by James Lincoln Warren, past master. Pressed by cultural forces, Iranian and Cuban Freemasons still find a way forward. Brothers in the Grand Lodge of Iran in exile show respect for diversity in a simple but moving tradition. In a degree ceremony, rather than a single holy book upon the altar, They stack five, representing the faiths of Zoroastrianism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, and Baha'i. Even in the United States, where we benefit from the world's longest-lived liberal democracy, this is a poignant gesture. In nations where religious freedom is restricted, it is also courageous. It suggests the kind of thinking that sent the Grand Lodge of Iran into exile in the first place. From Iran, Persecution and Tolerance At the Fraternity's height in Iran, there were 43 lodges and more than 1,000 Freemasons. But with the Islamic Revolution of 1978, Iran's laws were replaced with strict Islamic rule and Masonry was declared illegal. By some accounts, more than 200 Masons were executed, many more imprisoned, and had their property sequestered. A large number were purged from government offices and universities. Many Masons fled for Europe, Canada, and the United States. In the 1980s, a group of past masters sought and received permission to continue operating the Grand Lodge of Iran in exile, sponsored by the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. In 2009, the Grand Lodge of California authorized it to confer degrees in California, too. Today, the Grand Lodge of Iran in exile is headquartered in Los Angeles and has lodges in Washington, D.C. and France, as well as in California. Back in Iran, religious tolerance still has a long way to go. Although the Iranian constitution guarantees the rights of protected religious minorities to practice their faith, non-Shia Muslims encounter barriers to universities and employment and occasionally face police harassment. Freemasonry is still banned. But from their post in exile, Iranian Masons continue to work toward the ideals that could bring them back home. In 2013, the Grand Lodge of California interviewed the Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Iran in exile, Ramin Bagherzadeh and forgive me if I butchered that name, for the video, The Holy Writings. When the candidate enters a lodge for the first time, Bagherzadeh says, All the tools and all the signs that have so much meaning to us are meaningless. The only thing we have in common with him is the belief in God. And as proof, there are the holy books, stacked one upon the other on the lodge altar. In one sense, they are there to guide the master in his teachings and behavior. Bagarzade says, So you might expect... The book of the master's preference to be displayed first. However, in nearly every instance, the master lays the book of the candidate's faith on top. It is there to greet him, to bind him with his brothers, and to remind him that inside the Masonic lodge his beliefs are welcome. A complicated coexistence. Of course, Iranian Masons are not the only ones faced with the challenge of upholding Masonic values that may clash with that of their culture. Often throughout history, where totalitarian governments have suppressed religious freedom, they have also suppressed masonry. But there is at least one surprising exception, Cuba. Freemasonry and its message of religious tolerance and acceptance has survived under the communist government of this tiny island nation. Like Iran, the Cuban constitution recognizes the right of citizens to profess and practice any religious belief. But also like Iran, the government has a history of restricting freedom of religion nonetheless both in law and in practice. Religious persons encounter employment discrimination in certain fields, such as education. The government denies internet access to many religious groups. Private houses of worship still experience government harassment and evictions. And yet Freemasonry has never been banned. Perhaps it's a matter of patriotism. Many heroes of the Cuban resistance to Spain in the 19th century were famously Masons. Officially, the government praises Freemasonry for being associated with the noblest moments of Cuban history. Another theory refers to the failed assault on the Moncado barracks by Fidel Castro against the Bautista dictatorship in 1953. After the action, Batista ordered that Castro be found and executed without trial. The officer leading the unit, found Castro, was a master mason named Lt. Pedro Saria. Unwilling to commit murder, Saria disobeyed the order and captured Castro alive, saving his life. After the 1959 revolution, Castro is said to have allowed the Grand Lodge of Cuba to continue to exist out of gratitude. Whatever the reason, Freemasonry has continued to exist in Cuba, although it has contended with varying levels of government restriction. For many decades, the government prohibited the fraternity from participating in most public ceremonies. According to Freemasons for Dummies, a blog maintained by Christopher Hodap, who authored a book by the same name, it wasn't until the fall of the Soviet Union that the Cuban government allowed the fraternity to charter its first new lodges since 1967. Today, still, anything more than regular meetings requires government permission, and the publishing of Masonic books and pamphlets is severely limited. In 1992, the Cuban government removed its requirement for members of the Communist Party to be atheist, along with other reforms. This has contributed to an expansion and greater acceptance of Cuban masonry. By 2008, membership stood around 28,000, up from just 20,000 in the early 1980s. The Grand Lodge of Cuba today includes Catholics, Protestants, Jews, Santeros, and Abacua, a cross-section of contemporary Cuban society. In the words of Jorge Luis Romu, Ph.D. of Syracuse University, this wide constituency is unlike any other civil society organization in Cuba today," writes Romeu. And so, although pressed by the governmental and cultural forces around them, Iranian and Cuban Freemasons have found a way to continue to expand. Their resilience and courage are helping cast the fraternity's light in some of the darker corners of our present world. Hopefully, they are illuminating the way to a more tolerant future.